0: John chapter number 4 tonight. Now, I'd like to just take a few moments of your time and uh, preach to you about the soul-winning burden of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, He is our example in everything that we do. He is the one we look to to learn what we ought to be. In fact, He's the one we look to, to learn who we are and who He is and who and what we ought to be. You know, I, I fear that sometimes we uh, get discouraged, we're spinning our wheels in this light, and it's because we're not looking to Him, to see His example, to see His life, and to ask ourselves, how would the Lord Jesus have me to live? What is it that matters to Him? Because that is what should matter to me. You know, we live in a day of alliances, don't we? <laughs> We live in a day where everybody's a part of some group. Everybody's a part of some effort. Uh, I mean, there's, you know, you've got the Association for the Preservation of Cats. You've got the Association for the Extinction of Cats. Somebody say amen to that. I'm probably part of the latter. you got, you got the Association of the Doers and the Association of the Donors, and it seems like we're going in a thousand directions. And I think at the end of the day, we ought to be busy about what the Lord was busy about. We ought to be focused on what He was focused on. Unless we're ready to call the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ a waste of time, then we must acknowledge that anything that we do out of step with what He did would have to be a waste of time. And in John chapter 4, there's an interesting a uh, parenthetical passage, if we can call it that, or, or we might just call it a parenthetical narrative towards the end of the chapter. And I want us to read it tonight. Most of us are familiar with this portion of Scripture. Uh, this is uh, the passage we like to call the woman at the well. But what I want to focus on tonight is not his interactions with her, but his interactions in her absence. In John chapter 4, and I'd like to begin reading In verse number 28, the Bible says, The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye there yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, Lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this evening. Thank You for this time. I pray now that You'd bless Your Word as it's preached unto Your people. Father, I love You, and I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen we've already noted, the narrative is quite familiar to most of us. The Lord Jesus has just spent a a, a considerable amount of time dealing with this Samaritan woman. I tell you, it's a study in and of itself to spend a little time just looking at the way that He dealt with her. There's a lot of wisdom we can glean as we deal with sinners if we'll look at the way the Lord dealt with sinners. Because He dealt with them just right. Somebody say amen to that. Dealt with them exactly how they needed to be dealt with. He showed compassion. He showed concern. Uh, he showed a willingness to speak with them and to share with them. And he, uh, listen, he made promises that God had made. Now, I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. We don't need to make promises God didn't make. But we don't ever need to hesitate to make promises God did make. In other words, if you look at somebody and say, Well, you know, God promises if you get saved, you're going to get rich, and you're going to, your health is always going to be good. All your relationships are going to be good. Your wife's going to turn pretty or your husband's going to lose weight. Whatever it might be, I believe you're out of step with what the Scriptures would have you do. But now if you look at somebody and you say, Now I promise you, if you'll accept the Lord Jesus, He'll forgive you and He'll change you. He'll save you and He'll give you a joy and He'll give you a peace. I believe you're right in step with what God would have us to do. And that's what the Lord Jesus did. He promised her uh, a, a well of living water and of everlasting life. And then, you know, she still didn't get it. She still wanted, uh, you know, a Savior that'd fix all of her temporal problems, and she didn't want to admit she had any spiritual problems. And that's where a lot of people are at today. They want a Jesus is going to get them out of debt or fix their marriage, but they don't believe they're a sinner and need to be saved. And so the Lord Jesus asks her a question. He says, uh, you know, or actually gives her a command. He says, you know, go call your husband. Tell him to come uh, hither. And uh, she did something interesting. She, she lied to him. She lied uh, by what she did not tell. Because she said, I have no husband. Now, Jesus knew that that wasn't the, the complete truth. She had been married five times before. And the fellow that she was with now, she wasn't even married to. She was just living with. And isn't that how the world views sin? You know, when they listen, when they've messed up and when they failed, rather than acknowledging they need a Savior... They just look around and pretend like they ain't a sinner anymore. That's what she did. She just simply said, well, I've tried and messed up enough times. I'm just going to quit trying, and I'm just going to pretend like everything's okay. And that's what she did. And, of course, the Lord reveals that to her, and she wants to have an argument with Him about theological things. And, you know, it do us well to remember, there's no point in having a theological debate with a spiritually dead person. It's a waste of time. You may win the argument, but you won't win the person. Because Let me tell you why. Because you're bound by truth. And a lost person is not bound by truth. They'll say anything. They're not bound by relating and conveying their convictions, their beliefs. They're just trying to get the best of you. And so rather than getting into an argument with her about what mountain they ought to worship in, she just said, you know, you know not what you worship. Salvation is of the Jews. In other words, uh, he said, the problem with you is not that you know too much or know too little about religion. The problem is you don't know God. And that's what's missing from your life then, of course, she tries to say, well, one of these days, Messiah's going to come. He's going to tell us all things. That's how people say People think that when they die and meet God, they'll get a choice at that point. But he says, I that speak unto thee am he. In other words, she tried to put it off. And she tried to say like a lot of people do. Well, one of these days, we'll get to heaven and figure it all out. Let me tell you something. If you don't believe right now what God has already got figured out, you'll never stand in God's heaven. You'll stand at the great white throne judgment to be cast into everlasting fire. And so, uh, you know, he, he dealt with her just exactly how she needed to be dealt with. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because she believed on Him. She left her water pot. She went back to the city. She said, come see a man that told me all things that ever I did. is not this, the Christ. So I just suggest to you, before we even get started preaching tonight, that the way Jesus does things is the right way to do things. That what He does works. That it doesn't matter, that this uh, modern culture of seeker-friendly Christianity, that ones to send out a bunch of, uh, you know, surveys to find out what lost people want God's house to be like, and then try to build it that way, that way you can pack it out. That's not the way Jesus Christ did things. Uh, he didn't change His message according to His crowd. Somebody say amen to that. He realized that what He had was what they needed. He realized this woman, no doubt it would have been a lot more comfortable a conversation... If he had just said, well, in your own way, in your own time, try to find a way to worship God. That would have been a lot easier. But she would have walked away lost. And what are we doing if we're not trying to win people to Christ? We can build a big building. We can pack it full of unregenerate people. We can have the biggest tithes in town. We can have the biggest programs in town. But if we're not trying to reach people with the gospel, what are we doing? There's no point in it. We'll walk away from this world. And having made no impact on wouldn't it be a sad thing, listen to me, wouldn't it be a sad thing if the footprint of Walridge Baptist Church at the judgment seat of Christ was no bigger than this two-acre plot of ground that we sit on right now? How sad would that be? The Lord Jesus, as He is standing there, the woman goes into the city and the disciples come to Him and they do something very disciple-esque. Can I say it that way? They do something you'd expect them to do and they do something probably me and you would do as well. They come to him and they tell him what he ought to be worried about. They tell him where his focus needs to be. Now, the Lord Jesus, not only was he God in the flesh, but he was also a grown man. Somebody say amen to that. I've been raised in the South. And when you're raised in, in the South and when you go home, there is a perpetual argument and fight that must take place every time that you walk into Mama's house. Because every time you walk into Mama's house, and this is how God designs these things, it is your job to ensure that you don't eat anything on that premises. And equally so, she feels called of God to ensure that you will ingest and consume something before you leave that property. And inevitably, when I go over to Mom and Dad's house, now I'm 28 years old, I've got a home of my own, I've got a wife, I've got a refrigerator... It's got food in it. I got a wallet. It's got a little money in it. There's drive throughs restaurants everywhere. But every time I walk in, mama says, you want something to eat? And I'll say, no, I'm okay. And the next thing she'll say is a fascinating study in the psychology of a mama. Because you know what she then says? She then says, are you sure? (laughs) Stop and think about that for a minute. How would I not be sure? It ain't her belly. It's my belly. It ain't her appetite. It's my appetite. And so I'll say, no, I'm okay. And she'll say, we got biscuits. <laughs> like I'm just waiting for the right. And you know what? You know how it usually ends? I'm going to make a confession to you. and Judge me if you want to, but it is usually how it is. Mama, I'm a grown man, and if I'm hungry, I'll tell you. Well, sort of a similar interaction happened with the Lord Jesus. They come and they want to tell Him what He should be worried about. Now, isn't that the way that the world and modern Christianity does? It wants to come into the local church and tell it what it needs to be worried about, where its focus needs to be. It's interesting to me that 30 years ago or so, a group of uh, church growth gurus began coming out with all these books, telling old-fashioned Bible-believing churches how wrong they were in their approach. And now, 30 years later, those same gurus are writing books, telling us how what we're doing now isn't working. Can somebody say the word racket with me? Rack it. No, the fact is this. There ain't no mysterious, super special secret knowledge that's going to come out in the next latest, greatest, you know, chicken soup for the purpose-driven church uh, book. The fact is, there is a pattern. There is a biblical structure. There is a way. There is a plan. And God gave it to the disciples the end of the book of Matthew when He said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's the plan. That's always been the plan. That's still the plan. And until the day that the Lord Jesus returns for His bride, that's going to keep on being the plan. And so they come and say, this is what you need to worry about. You need to worry about fulfilling your physical, your temporal needs. Now, can I say to you tonight that it's not wrong to eat? I would have thought, Brother Al, I would have thought somebody would have took a laugh when I said that. If you don't believe me, we'll take you over and feed you later. Amen? It's not wrong to eat. But there's more important things than eating sometimes. Now, I don't believe the real truth that Christ is teaching here relates necessarily and particularly to food. But what He is saying is, if they come to Him and they say, you need to stop, you need to eat. And the truth that He tries to convey is that though there is nothing wrong with the natural desire to go and to partake in food, in fact, it is necessary for our body to keep functioning, He is conveying this truth, there are more important things than the temporal and physical things that we see. There's more important things than that. You know how we know that? Because he says this, I have meat to eat that you know not of. He's saying, the problem is this, you don't you don't understand what's going on right here. That's what he was saying. He was saying, You're worried about the food I'm gonna put in my belly. I'm worried about the food I'm putting into my soul and being a witness to this poor woman. I'm worried about her spiritual condition. There's more important things in this world than the next paycheck then the next, uh, the, then the next uh, upgrade, then the next new car, then the next new house, then the next new whatever. There's more important things in this world than those things. And the sooner you learn that in your life, the less time you'll have wasted on things that are going to burn up anyway. He says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And they answered how most of us probably would. This is funny. Look at verse 33. You know, the Bible's funny sometimes. I I mean, it's humorous. There is a humor. Therefore, said the disciples one to another, hath any man brought him ought to eat? You see, they still didn't understand. They couldn't get their mind unlocked from the temporal. The woman that he had just got through witnessing to had struggled with this very same thing. You know how we know that? Look back earlier in the chapter. Look what she says. It says in verse number 11, The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? She didn't get it she didn't get the water that he was talking about. And then down in verse 15, the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. She still didn't get it. Can I just say this to you? When you're wrapped up more in the things of the world than you are in the things of God, you have the same mentality the lost person has. I feel like that should have hit a little better than that. When you're wrapped up in those things, you've got the same mentality the lost person had. Just living for the moment, living for the bank account, living for whatever it might be. That's the focus, that's the drive. Living like there's never going to be a judgment seat before God. That's the same mentality that they have. Isn't that interesting that the very disciples that had walked with God, the very disciples that had seen Him raise the dead, that had seen Him open-blinded, that had seen all these wondrous things, the very ones that spent the most time with Him, could still have that same mentality like a lost person. I tell you, it's a convicting thing when I think about us. You know, we're church-going people. We're here on a Sunday night. You know why folks come on Sunday night, right? So you can sit around and talk about those that wasn't here from Sunday morning. Amen? That's why they come on Sunday night. And some of y'all, you'd be amazed what the Wednesday night crowd says about you. That's the best reason to go be faithful church is just to defend your honor. Amen? You know, you got you got to, stay, you got to stand ready at all times. And, uh, you know, we're, we're a church-going crowd. I understand that. We've got our, our, got our King James Bible in our hands. We've got our, our Sunday go-to-meet-and-close. clothes, we have got our standards. We've got the right... I mean, I believe we've got all those things right. Somebody say amen to that? If I didn't, we wouldn't do it. Amen? If I didn't, I wouldn't waste my time on it. I believe we've got those things right. I believe those things are right. But isn't it scary to think that we can have all those things right and still have the same mindset that the lost and dying world does? How is that living for temporal, living for now, living for self, living for satisfaction? And so he then changes it around and he says this to them. Verse 34, he says, My meat, the thing that sustains me, the thing that feeds me, the thing that nourishes me, the thing that is my very life, my meat, is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. It was a great day in my life when I learned what that verse is saying. Here's why. Because here's what you think when you're a young preacher. You think, my meat is to win a thousand people to Jesus. Or you think, my meat is to build a big old church. Or you think, my meat is to be respected amongst my peers. My meat is to be successful in this venture of ministry. Let me tell you something, neighbor. It was a great day in my life when I realized that that's not the thing that ought to drive me. I ought to consider success if I do the will of Him that sent me and finish His work. The Lord Jesus did not say, my meat is to bear fruit. He said, my meat is to finish the work. Uh, it ought to be enough. And I know, it's, I know a lot of times it's not for us. It, it would be if we'd let it. I ought to say it this way. A lot of times it's always enough for us, but sometimes it's not enough to us. But it ought to be enough just to simply be a part of this work that God is doing. Be a part of this work that God is doing. Can I ask you something? What would happen if we gave out, we put about, I think it was about 2,300 tracts that we bundled up. What would happen if we gave every single one of these out and not a single person walked through that door? Not a single person went through the baptismal waters. Would it be a waste of time? No, because my meat is not to build a big church. If God does that, that's wonderful, that's great. My need is to do the work, of uh, do the will of Him that sent me, and to finish His work. You see, that's what's going to be your driving force in life. You're, what drives, you're never, listen, If 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 your faithfulness is dependent upon feeling or success, then it's not faithfulness. Faithfulness, by virtue of being faithfulness, operates under barrenness and hardship. It would not be faithfulness if it was just for the good times. It's easy to be faithful when everything's easy. It's easy to be faithful when everything's good. That's no problem. It's not faithfulness; it's opportunism when we are merely faithful at the times when it benefits us or when it's easy to do. No, faithfulness is born for hard times. Faithfulness is born. You remember what the Lord G or what Paul told uh, young Timothy? He said, "Thou therefore, he said, endure hardness as good soldier of Jesus Christ." Man, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. And not because things have been hard. I mean, God's been blessed and it's been good, but I've just been thinking about that verse. What does that mean? You see, we always imagine that what that means is difficulties. And certainly, there, there is a truth there. I mean, certainly, I believe that Paul had in mind some trials, some afflictions, some persecution. But can I just say to you that we live in hard days. We live in hard days. People are hard towards the Gospel. People are hard towards the Word of God. There's never been a day in this country, culturally, where the Word of God has been disdained as much as it is today. Never been a time. I promise you, listen, now some of y'all won't believe this, but it happens almost every time. If it happens like it normally does, we'll get one or two of these back in the mail with a dirty letter. Have you ever read it? There's not an offensive thing from the first word to the last word. It's a warm invitation, it's a kind presentation of the gospel. But there's a hatred for the Word of God. There's a hardness towards the things of God. There's a hardness, man. We live in hard times. We live in times where it seems like it's hard for people to be in the house of God. And I'm not saying that to alleviate anybody's faithfulness and burden to be in the house of God. I'm not saying to make excuses for anyone. I'm just saying this. I was talking to somebody about it the other day. You know, there was a time when, I mean, you know, church was what you did. Church was what you did. And at that time, man, you could take, you kick a can down the road and wherever it landed, plant an independent Baptist church. There'd be folks come in. There'd be folks build. There'd be folks stay. There'd be folks be faithful. Now we live in a day you can't let your kids get out, run in the yard. Some, some creep will come by and pick them up. So what are people doing? they got to have their kids enrolled in softball and dance and soccer and and, and baseball and and all these different extracurricular activities. Guess when they like to do stuff? Somebody say, Wednesday. (laughs) And all of a sudden, I'm just saying, we live in hard times. And you're going to have to make some hard choices about what's a priority and what's important to you and what matters. There may be times your family don't like those choices. There may be times your kids don't like those choices. But you see, God didn't call us to do the easy things. We'd do the easy things anyway. He commands us to do the hard things. We're to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And so as we read this passage, what does he say? He says, my meat is to do, to do, to do. Not my meat is to talk about doing. My meat is to do. That's why a lot of folks ain't satisfied serving God, because they ain't serving God. They're just talking about serving God. They're just talking about it. They're just talking about what we ought to do, talking about what somebody else ought to be doing. You know, you ever met somebody like that? Man, I mean, if God God ever called anybody to be a delegator, you ever met somebody like that? They knew what everyone else needed to be doing. But here's the problem. That ain't going to satisfy you, because the Lord Jesus didn't say, my meat is to talk about doing. He said, my meat is to do. My meat is to do. Listen, I you'll never get bored serving Jesus. You may get burdened sometimes. You may get weary sometimes. There's times you might even get overwhelmed. But you won't get bored serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, my meat is to do. And then he turns their attention to something of profound importance. He says this to them. Jesus saith unto them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And then notice the burden that the Lord Jesus has. Now, basically what he's just said is, I have a burden. That's what he's just said. He said, you're worried about feeding me. I'm worried about serving God. I've got a burden to serve God. And he explains something about what that burden is and how he got that burden. He says this, say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. I want you to notice first off the attitude of a burden. That he related. The attitude is this. We ought to serve God now while we have opportunity. He says, say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. What's he saying? He's speaking about the uh, the uh, farmers that might look forward to a particular date. It's been interesting. One of the things I've learned, you know, I've started doing a little gardening. And one of the things that you learn when you start doing gardening is everybody does it different. And everybody's way is the best way. <laughs> And, and, and you learn this too, there's no real hard and fast rules to it. Uh, you know, the, the, there's every year there'll be a projected last frost date. You know what I'm talking about? Last frost date. And it's like usually, I don't know, January 2nd or something. No, it's, it's later on down in, in like late March, early That's the last frost date. Now what would happen if we said to ourselves, those of us that garden, I can say that now, 'Cause I got a garden in the ground. I was telling them in senior saints on Friday morning. I said, you know, all my life I've had to listen to old people, every time it rained, I come and complain about the rain. I say, I hate this rain. And I've had to listen to old people say, Boy, my garden needed it. So this year, for the first time in my life, if you complain about rain around me, I'm gonna look you square in the eye because I've earned it. And I'm gonna say, Boy, my garden needs it. So I've had to listen to that my whole my whole life. What would be what would happen? Listen, if we went out and we said, Well the, the projected last frost date is over. Let's go ahead and put our plants in the ground. And there's the meteorologist saying, there's a good chance for frost here in a few days. But you say, but it don't matter. It's supposed to happen this way. And you go ahead in bullheadedness and do it anyway. Chances are you're going to wind up killing a lot of those plants. In other words, what he's saying is this. You have to work and labor according to the opportunity that you have. And you have to do it now because you may not get tomorrow. You may not get tomorrow. Say not there yet four months. You know, that's what we have tendency to do. You know, we, we think that we're going to have... Uh, we say, well, next year I'm going to get busy serving God. How do you even know you're going to have a next year? I, let me tell you something you are going to have. You are going to have an appointment at the judgment seat of Christ. It is appointed unto man wants to die, and after this is the judgment. That is going to happen. You don't have to wonder or worry if that's ever going to happen. that is going to happen. What you don't know if you'll have is the next six months you're planning on procrastinating and getting serious about serving God, or the next year that you're going to put off getting serious about serving God. People with a burden, they don't put it off. If they've got a burden, <laughs> then they go ahead and they get busy. If you, I, the, I've got a pet peeve, okay. And some of y'all know this about me. Some of y'all may not. If you don't, let me share it with you. People inevitably want to do this when you're a pastor. They won't come up to you right before you go to preach. And they want to say, Preacher, I need to talk to you after church. It's really important. Praying for you. And they want to walk away. Now, let me tell you something. Now, this is the honest truth. I've had people come up to me and I've had them say, Preacher, I need to talk to you after church. It's really important. And I say, OK, I get up in the pulpit and that thing's floating around in my mind. I'm thinking they're gone. I know they're gone. I know how this goes. And I come to them, you know, I get done preaching. I throw the sweat off me. I run down. Oh, what's going on? They say, I'm having surgery next week, so i ain't going to be here Sunday night. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I I, I want to know, but there's a way to share it, you know? And then I'm serious about this. I've had people come up and say this. I've had people come up and say, Preacher, it's not a big deal. Can I, can I get with you after the service? Just take a second time. It's not a big deal. And come to them after the service and they say, Listen, we're leaving. We're going to find a different church. So I just want to let you know. I'm serious. I've had people say that. I've had people approach it that way. And that's a pet peeve of mine. You know why? I want to know. I don't like to not know. Because I know it may affect me. I know it may affect others. And I'm not a patient person. I, I need to be more patient, but I, I, it bothers me. Can I say this? It burdens me knowing something might be about to happen. You see, when you get a burden, you won't put it off. And if you're putting off serving God, don't act like you've got a burden, Because you don't. A real burden doesn't say there's four months. A real burden doesn't say next year I'm going to get busy. A a real burden doesn't say, when this happens, when that happens, when this. A real burden says, I may not have ten more days. I better get busy serving God right now. We see the attitude of the burden. We see uh, the uh, avenue to having a burden. You say, how do I get that, preacher? How do I do that? How do I become that way? That's what some of y'all are thinking, no doubt. Some of y'all are sitting here and you're thinking, boy, I envy that. I want to be that way. How do I get that way? You know, I wish my life... Let me tell you, this is how. Lift up your eyes. And look on the fields. That's how. You see, the eye gate is always the avenue through which the burden travels. You know, listen, you know what Jeremiah said in the book of Lamentations? He said, mine eye affecteth mine heart. Part of the problem is this. We don't ever look around. And we don't ever look at those that are around us and look at them through the eyes that the Lord Jesus looks at them through. You understand, you, you go down to the Walmart and you're walking up and down the aisles. That person that is walking towards you, pushing their buggy, that's somebody Christ died for. And you don't know who that person is, but He knows the very number of hairs on their head. And when He was on the cross, they were on His mind. And you look at him and you don't know, you don't know what's going to happen with them. You're going to pass them in the store, they're going to go past you. You may not ever see him again in your life. But Jesus loves them. Jesus knows the time is ticking, the the, the grains of sand are falling. And that those people all around us, what does the Bible say? You know, the Bible is a statistical book. Now, you can get in the ditch. You can take this too far and get in the ditch. But if we were were to look at the parable of the sower and the seed and use it as just a, a basic, loose standard for how people respond to the Word of God then you could say this, that out of four different groups, only one of them actually responded to the Word of God in the right and appropriate way. Now, I understand you've got to be careful with that. You you get people that they got their integers, you know, uh, tipped over their denominators, and they're way down in China trying to dig their way out of their study Bible. I know you can get too deep. I understand that. But I think it's just a basic principle, and I think it's probably worse than this. Somebody say, Amen. I think it's worse than this statistic. That's my opinion. That if you were just to say 75% of the people walking up and down these streets don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, well, preacher, you don't know that. You're right. It's probably more like 85, 90, or 95. Broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And few, <laughs> and, and, and many there be that go therein. Narrow, straight is the way that leads unto life everlasting. And few there be that find it. And I think many still means many, and I still think few means few. And I think we better get it through our head, because these people are dying without Christ. But as Christians, we like to bury our head in the sand. There's a term, and I, and I hate this term, but I use it occasionally just because it conveys an idea. But I really, I hate this term, because I believe this is something that's used to soften us to the reality of a lost person's condition. And it's the term unchurched. Unchurched. I, and I've used it before if I'm trying to describe a particular people group that, that may be saved but not in church. But, but I think part of the design behind that language is to soften the reality. Let me tell you something. It's not those that are church and those that are unchurched. You grow up around here, to be church don't mean something positive. Somebody say amen to that. It means something altogether. Nick, it's not those church and those unchurched. It's those that are lost and those that are saved. Those that are saved are on their way to heaven and those that are lost are on their way to hell. That's the reality. We just have to open our eyes and look around. We have to, we have to face reality. Let me tell you one of the things I love to hear. We got a, we got a, a church member and, and, and I, and I want to be cautious. I want these things to get recorded, put it on the internet. Most of you will know who I mean when I, when I say this. We've got a church member who's praying for a loved one and she's been praying for this loved one for a long time. And one of the things that I appreciate about this church member and, and a lot of times in seniors meeting or wherever it might be, she'll, she'll say, pray for so and so. They're lost. They're lost, not just they're wayward, not just they're out of church. Now, listen, if 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 all the person you're praying for is is out of church, they're not lost and don't lie about it. But if they're lost, then call it what it is because they're lost. They need to be saved. I believe God honors that kind of honesty. I believe God honors that, and I, I believe that for us to really pray right, we've got to get that honest. That's part of the reason we don't have a burden. We don't want a burden. We do everything we can looking away from the reality of it to keep from getting a burden because it troubles us and it disturbs us to really think about the fact that as we walk up and down these streets, the people that are passing us are on their way to hell, a real literal hell with real literal fire where their smoke will ascend forever and ever and their torments will never end. One of these days they're going to be there. And you say, well, what could change that? You and me. That's what could change that. We'd share the gospel. You know, that's the only difference between us and them. Somebody told us and we believed and we trusted. We're no different than them. I understand we're justified. I understand we're born again. I understand we're indwelt by the Spirit of God. But when we really get down to brass tacks, why are we here and why are they there? Because somebody shared the gospel with us and we believed and we're saved. Some of them haven't had that benefit. And it's upon us. It's upon us. It's upon us to do the work. We see the avenue of a burden. we got to get our head out of the sand. we got to start looking at this world through the eyes of Christ and seeing that people are lost on their way to hell. And then I want you to notice the awareness. He says this, they're white already to harvest. Now, you know this. You've probably heard this message preached a hundred times. But you know this is true. You know that by the time it's white, it's already dying. It's just waiting to fall off the stalk. Is waiting to that's why when we talk about those, those amber waves of grain, it's not those, you know, white waves of grain. It's those amber waves. Because wheat, when it's healthy and when it's growing, it's not white. Uh, it's white when it's dying. And that's the picture. That's the awareness we need to have. That's the reality that we need to appropriate. It's not that, well, one of these days they'll get to heaven and St. Peter will, will walk them to those big scales and they'll weigh their, their good works against their bad works and they'll weigh their baptisms versus their ba- blasphemies and, and it'll somehow balance out and come out in the wash. No, they're right now dead in their trespasses and sins. They've already died their uh, spiritual death. Now they're just waiting to die their physical death. One of these days... Uh, the Lord, G- or uh, the John told it, talked about it in Revelation chapter 20 when he talked about the, the great white throne judgment, said they'd be cast in the lake of fire, and said this is the second death. The second death. The second death. They're already spiritually dead. One of these days they're going to physically die. Then after that, physical death, if, they, if they've not received Jesus Christ, there'll be a second death. They'll be cast in the lake of fire. That's the reality. That's, listen, that's more real than, than most of the things that we, that we populate our mind with. That's more real than the soap operas we watch. It's more real than the movies that we watch. It's a real, literal devil's hell and they're on their way there. Now when you get serious about that, you'll get a burden. Listen, if you were to believe that hell is real, the sinners are on their way, and, and you really wrap your mind around that, you see the flames and you smell the burning. You'd have to be a madman. You'd have to have no soul for it not to move you. The problem is, oh no, no, we just don't look. We just don't look. We pretend like everybody's okay. We pretend like everything's okay. We, we pretend like everybody's just, uh, nobody's lost anymore. Everybody's just a little wayward and does things their own way. God help us. And it ain't no wonder we don't have a burden. We fill our lives with distractions to anesthetize us to our responsibility. And then we wonder why we don't have a burden. And then, listen, and then we all want to get in here and, and get moved all of a sudden by a little singing, a little preaching. How can people, listen, how, how are you going to move somebody that's living in a dream? We've got to wake up to these things. We've got to be moved by these things. We've got to look at the reality of these things. And until we do, we're not going to have a burden. We're not going. To, and listen, nothing but a burden will get the job done. If it, if anything but a burden would have got the job done, Jesus wouldn't have had a burden. But he had a burden because that's the only thing that gets it done. It's the only thing that does it. Oh, listen. All the programs. We're not against programs, right? Uh, we got things we're praying about right now in the works. New means and methods of outreach and trying to reach people. But if it's not bathed in prayer, and if it's, and if it's not begun in a burden, and if it's not centered around the gospel. Then it's to no avail. It means nothing. And it won't take long. It'll peter out. It'll die. We've got to get a burden about these things. There's, there was more I was going to say, but I believe the Lord's done tonight. If God spoke to your heart, I just wonder if you'd lift your eyes tonight. I wonder if you'd be honest and you'd say, Lord, I will allow myself to see the peril and perishing of lost souls if it might move me to be a greater witness for you with our.